Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of HHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of HHP Voices. Payer site of care mandates are resulting in steerage of patients, including those with cancer and other complex diseases, to care settings that are not integrated into their primary site of care and providers. To discuss this topic, our guests today are Dr. Kenneth Komorny, Vice President and Chief Pharmacy Officer at Moffitt Cancer Center, and Nicole Bennett, who is a cancer fighter and advocate. Ken, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. Nicole, as we kick off our conversation, would you be willing to talk about what you were being treated for and what treatments you were receiving? Absolutely. I was diagnosed in 2015 with stage four metastatic neuroendocrine tumor cancer with metastases to the intestines, the mesentery area, and more recently throughout the skeletal system. I started treatment mostly just trying to keep the symptoms at bay with octreotide injections. In 2017, I was a part of a clinical trial for PRRT treatment in the Bronx, New York at Montfiore Hospital. And that kept me stable for a long time. And I was able to function very well. And I would say almost have a a normal (laughs) life until recently when I started to have progression of my disease again. So we started a clinical trial with Keytruda and Linvatinib, where I proved to be intolerant of the Keytruda and the Linvatinib on its own was not effective. So I'm currently awaiting a chair in a new clinical trial. I think they call it an alpha PRRT, which will give me the best results but there's currently no chairs available. So in the meantime, I am on Affinitor to try to stabilize the progression as well as laneriotide to help with the symptoms, morphine for pain, and a plethora of nausea medication. And along with being the cancer fighter that you've described yourself as, you've also chosen to be an advocate. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I really just want to take this opportunity again to thank you for being here today to talk about this really important topic and and your perspectives as someone who is fighting cancer today as we speak. So again, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be a voice, especially for some people who might not have that opportunity or ability. So thank you. It's our pleasure. And why are payers moving to steer patients 
receiving oncology medications to locations and providers other than their primary settings of care, their primary oncology providers? Well, Dan, that's probably best answered by the payers. But what we've learned in communications from them is that this is being done exclusively to reduce expenses. But the question is to reduce expenses for whom? During the testimony of the PBM reform bill, the legislators specifically asked the PBM trade spokesman, what expense reduction do PBMs provide to the patients? And he answered that they work with employers to lower expenses. There was no mention of any impact to the patients. I guess there's an opportunity that money trickles down to the patients, but that's not what we've heard from our patients in our data review. No patient shared any expense reduction, and several shared that their out-of-pocket expenses increased, and in some cases, significantly. So, Ken, along with the expense side of this and the cost to patients, the monetary cost to patients, what are the other risks to care steerage? So risks associated with this level of care is that the decisions are unilateral in nature, and they may or may not be in the best interest of the patients. As we shared in the paper, we had one payer that was causing nearly all of our steerage. And in meetings with them over a two-year period, we shared all of the negative patient care issues, and yet there was no change in the policy or execution of the policy. So all the potential concerns that we have with one for-profit organization making all the decisions where care was provided, for whom it was provided, and by whom it was provided, became a reality for both us and for our patients. With the pharmacy services being provided from the out-of-state insurer-owned pharmacy, on-time delivery of prescriptions was abysmal. Less than half of the prescriptions were delivered on time, and in 6.5% of prescriptions, they left the out-of-state pharmacy after the dose was due for the patient. And this included rescue medications like Pecbilgrastum that were delivered up to 48 days after the dose was due, and some of those late and missed doses We had patients that went on to develop neutropenic fever, require hospitalization and antibiotics. But we also saw drugs used to treat cancer that arrived late or that led to delayed or missed treatments. Some of these patients had progression of their cancer. For example, we had a lanreotide dose that was received 39 days late. Unfortunately, Ms. Bennett was one of our patients who was subjected to the vertically integrated care that was fragmented and led to delays and missed medications. Nicole, from your perspective, as the individual receiving these medications, what would you add in terms of the risks that come forward as a result of this steerage? As Ken mentioned, a lot of times out-of-pocket expenses do go up. I personally had a situation with my provider where they did not process my copay assistance documents, which left me with a bill for several thousand dollars for these lanreotide injections. So many times as a patient of this, with this steerage, you begin to have to coordinate your own care a lot more than when you are in the hands of a great care provider like Moffitt. I'd like to mention, as Ken brought up, when the providers said that they were helping to bring down the expenses, 
Ken nailed it on the head when he said to whom I received a call from my provider and they were trying to save me money, quote, by having tests and scans and delivery of treatment medication at a facility closer to my home. And I explained to the gentleman on the other side of the phone that this really isn't going to save me money just because the other facility may not have the same cost. Maybe the cost will be lower, but you're asking me to take another day off of work. You are asking me to go to a facility that has no knowledge of my specific condition, my specific rare condition. You're asking me to go to a facility who in the past has put me in the emergency triage room and then didn't touch me when I had an allergic reaction to the Keytruda drug because they didn't know what to do with me and they wouldn't call my provider. So there are many risks involved. I have to say for our audience, I think that this will be could be eye-opening to hear the patient's perspective because we often hear from the, the clinician side, from the healthcare enterprise side, our assessment of what the risks are, what the downsides are to situations like this, but it's so strong to hear the patient's voice in this. Ken, you made reference to, to vertical integration, and I, I want to get into that a bit more in terms of the data risks in a moment, but I think it would be helpful if you could even just take a minute, because not all listeners may completely understand the concept of vertical integration and what that means. So before we start to talk about some of the risks related to data and vertical integration, can you just describe vertical integration for us? Yeah, happy to. Vertical integration is a term that's used to describe the practice whereby an insurer, a pharmacy benefit manager, a specialty pharmacy, and a provider group are all owned or affiliated with the same company. And all of the major insurers have aligned and owned companies within this vertical integration. Ken, in the paper, you describe data risks with vertical integration. What are those? So Dan, site of care steerage to different providers, by definition, fragments care for our patients. Data has been published that demonstrate that when cancer care is fragmented, endpoints like overall survival are statistically significantly reduced. At the root cause of that increasing mortality are missed or delayed oncology medications. Although we adamantly reject this fragmentation of cancer care, these policies were unilaterally mandated that our patients be transferred at a site other than Moffitt Cancer Center, and we'd been unable to prevent this steerage. We've had to employ nurses to advocate on behalf of patients to insurers to grant exceptions to their policies so that they can have their care provided at our center. Of all patients subjected to these steering policies, over half the patients were considered unfit for redirection, 
including about 50% that were stage four cancer patients. These patients are in the toughest battle stage against cancer and yet are being required to jump through all the hoops to get the care that they need. Nicole, I actually want to go back to something that you started to talk about a few moments ago. In the paper where Ken was the lead author, the authors of the paper described steerage as resulting in situations where patients have to coordinate their own care. And you just made reference to that. I'm wondering if you can talk even more about what that meant for you in terms of the steps that you had to take to coordinate your own care. Absolutely. In trying to receive my medication, my lanreotide injections, which were due every 21 days, I would have to call the specialty pharmacy that was owned by my provider and set up the delivery of this medication. And I'm not sure that most people would be aware other than the doctors and the cancer patients that receive this medication. But it is a medication that only has a certain shelf life and it does have to stay refrigerated. So we would have to coordinate a delivery to be sure of a a time that I would be home to receive it so that I could bring it inside, keep it refrigerated until the day it was to be administered. And because it is a deep tissue injection, I would then have to coordinate a nurse to come to my home to give the injection. So then we would have to coordinate with the nurse's schedule, my schedule, when the medication is going to come, how long is the medication going to be good for, and then how long before the nurse comes, should it not be refrigerated? How long can it not be refrigerated in case the nurse is delayed? Because life happens sometimes. Many times when ordering my medication, um, I would receive a confirmation number. I would receive an email. Yes, everything is approved and it's going through. And it comes the day that I'm supposed to receive the treatment and the medication didn't come. So I call the specialty pharmacy and trying to find out, you know, why is my medication delayed? And I'm told it wasn't shipped yet, but I had a confirmation number. I had an email. So what's the problem? Oh, well, we need more information from your doctor or we need a prior authorization. My goodness, the number of prior authorizations (laughs) it takes to get a shot. So then there would be a delay. Thank goodness Moffitt is so on the ball for their cancer patients that I could get on the phone with my nurse advocate or with my team in the oncology department and they would jump on it and they would call the same day, fax over anything that was needed, refuse to be put on hold until this situation was resolved. And even then, 
it's too late. I'm past my 21 days. So now I start having increased symptoms that truly, truly affect my quality of life. There were also times when I would have to reschedule with the nurse to receive it. Okay, the medication finally came. We got through the prior authorizations and the extra information that was needed from the doctors. And I'm told it's going to be delivered. I got another confirmation email, but the nurse is off on the day that it's supposed to be delivered. So then you have to coordinate with another nurse or God bless the nurses on the planet because I literally had one come on her day off just to give me my injection because that's when it arrived. So you talked about fragmentation of care and Nicole has just described, I think in very stark terms, placing the burden of coordination into the hands of or on the shoulders of the patient. Are there other factors or can you talk about the factors that further heighten risk associated with care, with steerage? We've we've already talked about so many of the adverse consequences of doing this. What are those factors that actually can further heighten the risks? Well, I think Ms. Bennett described the process by which fragmentation worsens cancer outcomes with all the extra steps, the extra hoops that are needed, non-value added steps that are built into the process that are unattainable. And these burdens are being shifted to the patients to manage. And we know the more steps or more boxes that need to, to be checked in order for a process to be executed, we know that there'll be failures in those processes. Again, Ms. Bennett described many situations in which the drugs were delivered late or were not delivered at all. And that's what ties back to the data that is evolving that is showing that fragmentation of cancer care leads to worse outcomes because patients aren't taking the drugs as we've studied them, as we've proven the value and the benefit of those agents, the patients are just not getting the doses that they need to get because of the broken process. So as a result of all of this, both of you were have been actively involved in legislation that's made its way through the, the legislature in Florida. I believe that you referred to it, Ken, a little bit earlier as the PBM reform bill. Can you talk about that legislation and you know, tell us a bit more about what it contains? Yeah, Dan, we're very excited about the legislation and the law that we have now in Florida. In the legislative session this past year, House Bill 1509 and Senate Bill 1550 were unanimously approved, but with bipartisan support from both the House and the Senate. And the bill was signed into law by Governor DeSantis to become effective on July 1st. This law requires PBMs to allow, and more importantly, prohibits the exclusion of hospitals like Moffitt Cancer Center from providing medications to patients like Ms. Bennett. It's one of the most robust PBM reform bills across the country and is among the 13 states that have placed significant guardrails around or prohibit white bagging in sight of care steerage. The sponsors of our bill 
shared that they've researched all of the other existing state laws to determine how to close off as many loopholes as possible. They said they have a recourse for filing complaints if the law is not being followed. And many legislators throughout session shared that this bill is a starting point for reining in PBMs, not the end point. And Nicole, you testified to the legislature, correct? I did. I was invited by my nurse advocate to be a part of it, to take a trip from where I live in Central Florida to our capital in Tallahassee and have the opportunity to talk about these issues. So what was the focus of your remarks in front of the legislature? In the three minutes I was allotted, (laughs) it was exactly what we're talking about now. It's about patients not receiving their medications. It's about patients having to coordinate their own care. It's about, specifically for me, cancer patients battling not only cancer, but now battling their own insurance provider that they are paying for. Nicole, you said that it was actually a nurse advocate who asked you to testify in front of the legislature. What made you say yes? Yeah, when I got that call from my nurse advocate who had fought on my behalf, who was the reason why I finally received those missing doses of lanreotide injection. And for Moffitt, who is an organization as, you know, a care team who has given me years of life to live, I couldn't say no. It sounds like the the power of your remarks certainly had a great influence as this legislation ultimately became law. So congratulations. And, and, and I, again, just want to commend you for also serving as such a strong advocate. It's remarkable. Ken, you used the term white bagging a while ago, and it wasn't that long ago that that wasn't part of our lexicon, and and now it is. It's squarely in the center. I wonder, is steerage now going to become a prominent part of our lexicon in terms of the use of medications? Is this something that we're going to that's that we're going to be hearing about a, a lot more? Yes, Dan. I think. Steerage is going to be part of the part of the vocabulary, part of the nomenclature. As states address the practices such as white bagging and brown bagging, site of care steerage appears to be a evolution of those practices. Certainly within the managed care and payer strategies realm, site of care steerage is, is very common but I think it's going to expand and in the pharmacy circles and in other circles within the healthcare, it will become a lot more predominant. Nicole, a few moments ago, Ken, in talking about the PBM reform bill, basically said, this is a start. This is not the last step. What do you see as the next steps that are needed to address optimizing care for people with cancer? Well, now that we will have protection when it comes to where we receive our care, I would love to see a day 
when insurance providers cannot deny the treatments that your doctors as professionals say that you need. I have a specific incident just recently, a couple of months ago, I had a tumor close to my brain and we had to do something fast before it could have an opportunity to cause damage. And so the best treatment, the most efficient treatment and and the quickest answer was radiation to that one specific area. My insurance provider denied the claim because they said there was no proof that this treatment would be any more successful than a different treatment that they would approve. Once again, thank God for Moffitt Cancer Center and specifically for the doctor who had a very strong conversation (laughs) with my insurance provider and I was able to get the treatment that I needed. So I would love to see a day where insurance companies cannot deny the treatments and the medications that our doctors as professionals see fit for you to have. And what would you add to that from the the health systems perspective, the, the pharmacy executives perspective? What would you add to Nicole's thoughts on what steps need to occur next? Well, as Nicole shared, we got a huge win with Senate Bill 1550 in a quest to improve care for patients in the state of Florida. But we're not finished with that yet. From our perspective, from my perspective, I've been meeting with healthcare leaders across the country that have existing laws and statutes that govern white bagging and site of care steerage to learn more about the rollout of the program after their legislation became law to see how did the PBMs and the payers react. Additionally, our legal counsel has drafted and sent letters to the PBMs and insurers requesting access to be able to fill prescriptions and again, provide care for our patients. We've requested responses within 30 days and we'll continue to follow up until we're provided access. We continue to pursue gaining the ability to provide care for our patients that have been steered away as well as new patients. And we're not going to rest until that completely happens. Any roadblocks or pitfalls to our pursuit of being able to care for our patients will be reported to the legislators. And we're prepared to go back to Tallahassee for the 2024 legislative session if necessary. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Kenneth Camorney and Nicole Bennett for joining us today to discuss site of care, steerage, and the article payer site of care mandates with oncology medications, it's time to demand payer accountability on behalf of patients, which was recently published on hhp.org. Nicole, I, I want to wish you the very best as you continue to fight your cancer and advocate for yourself and for other people with cancer not only in the state of Florida, but the effects of your work are being seen across the country. And I want to just wish you the best as you continue to do that. 
So please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.